This is a reading from the Old Testament, the word of the Lord. Ezra 1, 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all kingdoms of earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Well, Sojourn, we are under the conviction that all scripture is breathed out by God including the Old Testament, St. Augustine said that the scripture is the one sermon of God. And one of the things that I love about sojourners most is that you guys are always ready to read that one sermon of God, to hear from that one sermon of God from all over, including the Old Testament, which is where we find ourselves this morning. So about halfway through your Old Testament is the book of Ezra, is where we will be this morning. Now I wonder, how do you see your own history? How do you view what you have done in life and what has been done to you? I think for everybody, there's at least a few different perspectives on this that would tell of the same events a little bit differently. We could think about it this way from, from the story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis. From kind of the ground level, if, if you were to share the story of Joseph, one of the things that you could say was that he was hated by his brothers, he was thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, imprisoned, and then became the ruler. So you could say that that's his story. That's the way it goes. You could tell it in a human way. But there's also a different perspective, kind of a, a view from above, a, a more theological perspective to it that would say that, yes, Joseph was imprisoned, that he was uh, hated by his brothers, thrown in a pit, and imprisoned in Egypt. But you could also say this, from as the psalmist does in Psalm 105, verse 16, that he, when there was a famine in land, that there was a man sent ahead of God's people, Joseph, provided a way for the people of God to be sustained. Both same ways of, of telling the same story, but from different kind of perspectives and different angles. You could say the same thing about Esther. Esther is... Apparently a good-looking lady, king sweeps her up, wants to have her in his court as his queen because of Vashti and problems there. We won't get into all that now. Issues with her. It could be that she just looks the right way, so the king likes her and brings her in. Or you could kind of have a view from above, as Mordecai does when he tells Queen Esther when the, the edict goes out that they're going to destroy the Jews. He says, perhaps God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. Two different views, two different perspectives. One's kind of on the ground level, maybe a, a strictly human perspective. The other one's kind of from above. 
more theological perspective. The same could be said of all of history. The same could be said of your history. Yeah, there are easy human ways to thinking of your own life and what you have done and what has been done to you. And there's also the way that God has moved and acted and worked in your life. And the same is true of the history of Israel. Ezra and Nehemiah is a historical narrative. It has some what we'd call kind of historiography where there's some personal biographical information in it told through the lens of certain characters, but it's a historical narrative telling of Israel's return from exile, going back into the promised land and rebuilding the temple there. But it's told not just from kind of the ground level. There is a lot of that, but it's also told with a theological lens, a theological perspective with a purpose. Here in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, we're encouraged to trust the Lord because he is both faithful and sovereign. 1, 1 through 4 encourages the people of God to live by faith, not by sight in the midst of this fallen and broken world, learning to trust in the Lord's sovereignty and faithfulness as seen throughout history, as he's worked and acted and moved he wants us to see his sovereignty and faithfulness and to live accordingly even in our own lives. When we look at the world, when we look at our lives, when we look about our events and the circumstances and all that's surrounding us and things that have been done to us and things that we have done, we have to look through eyes of faith. Now, that doesn't mean that we always see or are aware of God's sovereignty or his faithfulness at work in our lives. There are going to be times when God seems at best distant and at worst completely absent, but trusting in the Lord means knowing his character knowing it in the times when he seems distant or absent, trusting in it, depending upon him always, perhaps especially when he seems completely absent. Faith is knowing who God is and relying upon it. It's knowing that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, that he is who he says he is in the scripture. And it's walking in alignment with that knowledge, especially, again, when he seems distant. You might have heard the famous phrase that's often attributed to uh, Charles Spurgeon, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. Well, Charles Spurgeon didn't actually say it that way. So don't quote that as Spurgeon. That's a song. Here's how he did say it. He, the Christian, trusts him, God, where he cannot trace him. He looks up to him in the darkest hour and believes that all is well. That's the Christian, the one who trusts and looks. Now, one way God builds that trust in his people is by by performing all these acts throughout history, but he's, he goes beyond that even. He not only does and works and acts in history, but he also interprets it for us that we might see who he is, see what he's like, and trust in him. And Ezra and Nehemiah does that for us. It shows us not only what has happened, but how God has worked. It interprets it for us in a way. And so we go to Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah, as we're doing these together, were originally kind of one book. They were put together. So we I might say Ezra and Nehemiah several times, or Ezra or Nehemiah, but they are originally one book, and they cover roughly 100 years of Israel's history, from the year 538 to 433 of Israel's history. And they, they kind of tell us the history of, of Israel being able to go back into the promised land and rebuild their lives there, rebuild even the temple there. It was probably written a little bit in, sometime in the 400s, possibly in the 300s, so after kind of this has happened, to encourage the people of God. Now, you got to wonder, how did we get to this point where we are in Ezra? Right? You might remember all the way back in Genesis 12 that God called a man named Abraham. He was called Abram, then he names him, renames him Abraham. And he made a promise to this man 
that he would give him a land, that he would give him offspring, and that he would make him a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Now, this promise was starting to become realized when he has his, his son. He has Isaac, and Isaac has a son, and it's passed down. The promise of land and seed and blessing gets passed down from person to person. And so the people of God, we get all the way up to Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob, one of the sons of the promise. But we know some of the story of Joseph. It doesn't go so well for him. He's thrown in a pit. He's sent off into slavery. He's imprisoned in Egypt. But God sovereignly works and raises him up to a place of prominence where he could protect and provide for God's people in the middle of a famine. But it wasn't long before, after Joseph passes away, that the Egyptians look upon them and don't think that they're such a blessing to them anymore and decide then they were going to bless them in a different way by making them slaves. So the people of God who were promised a different land to bless all the nations are enslaved in Egypt. And what does God do? He, he works by his mighty power, by his great uh, might to pull them out of Egypt, to redeem them from their slavery to the Egyptians. And he takes them and leads them through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, into the land that he had promised to give them, defeating their enemies in front of them. So there we have the people of God in the promised land, the land that God had promised to give them. They're in God's place. They're under God's rule. They're to obey God's word and live in faithfulness to his covenant that he has given them. And yet we know the story. Story is true in our own lives, right? The, we see God create, we see God work and move, and we see people fail and sin. Indeed, Israel didn't live faithfully before their God. They sinned against Him. You know, the Scripture describes it very graphically sometimes, that they hoard after other gods, that they were idolaters, that they neglected and disobeyed God's word, God's covenant, God's law. And though they were warned many, many times though God had tried to call them back to covenant fidelity, to faithfulness to his word, to obey the law, Israel fell. And what God warned them, if they would not return to him, was that they would be taken over by others. And so I have a, a, a timeline up here for you to kind of follow along some of the history of Israel. David was this great king after kind of the failed king of Saul and his leadership, and he unites the kingdom, and, and he has great success. Then the kingdom passes from him to Solomon, again, another king that seems to be doing the right things and leading the people in the right ways, but he doesn't stay faithful for his life. Indeed, after him, the kingdom is divided to where we have the, the northern tribes, ten tribes. That was considered Israel, as you read it in Kings and Chronicles. And the southern tribes, that would be where Jerusalem is, called Judah. So they're split. And the northern tribes, they had a lot more problems a lot earlier on. There are not faithful kings there. They're not leading them to honor and trust and obey God. So God warns them through prophets many times, but they continue in their unfaithfulness. And in 722, the Assyrians come and they take over. Now, the southern tribes are, are still in Jerusalem. They're, they're still able to follow after the Lord and worship as they please, but God warns them because they too are walking in unfaithfulness and disloyalty to their God, and so God warns them, and they too fall. Judah, the southern kingdom, with Jerusalem, there's this man named Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of Babylon. That was the superpower at the time that he came to Jerusalem. He shows up and he makes 
Judah. He makes Jerusalem a, a kind of a, a vassal nation. In other words, they have to pay tribute to him. He owns them. He gets to tell them what to do. He does that in 605. This will be the first time he shows up and he takes some of the Israelites into captivity with him. This would have been when Daniel went into captivity. They are an unfaithful vassal state. They don't pay tribute as they should. And so he shows up again, 597. He takes more into exile to continue to exert his power and authority over them. That would be when Ezekiel was taken, 597. Finally, he's had enough because they continue to not pay their tribute, to not do what he has asked them to do. And in 586, he'd had enough. And we read of how he treats them in 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings 25, starting verse 1, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month of the tenth day of the year, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night, by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. And every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls all around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude... Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. And not a pretty picture. And God had warned them that this was happening. I mean, this wasn't just a matter of military might and strength and strategy. This was a matter of the Lord's discipline. If you look with me in Jeremiah chapter 25, the people of God were warned. The word that came to Jeremiah concerning the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, King of Josiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. That was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah, to this day, the word of the Lord has come to me. And I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them, or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. Yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord." that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send from all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these surrounding nations, I will devote them to destruction, and I will make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. 
This whole land shall become a ruin and waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So just as the Lord had prophesied and told them, it came to pass. Nebuchadnezzar shows up, and they don't pay tribute to him as once, so he shows up and he destroys the place. Just as the Lord had told them, that it would be a ruin and a waste because of their unfaithfulness to him. I mean, can you imagine you know, all your home being torn down and you being yanked out of that place and taken into exile? And it's hard to imagine a more traumatic event than being besieged, defeated, and taken. And yet we read of what happened to them. We, there's a psalm, Psalm 137, that speaks of how some of the Israelites would have felt in the midst of this. Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. In other words, they're not in Jerusalem. They're in Babylon. And when we remembered Zion, they were weeping. On the willows there we hung our lyres. For there our captors required us, of us songs. They're, they're being taunted. They sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they say, well, how should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And they're in exile. Psalm 137 captures a bit of their despair. Perhaps at that time, God seemed distant or completely absent. But he wasn't. As God's people set in exile, as it seemed maybe as if they have no say-so about what's going on in their lives and that God maybe seems far away. God was at work, as he said. In Jeremiah 25, 12, he said, then after 70 years are completed, I'm going to punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And then Cyrus takes over the reins from Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus, the Persians, they come in and they defeat the Babylons and Cyrus takes over and that's where we pick up in Ezra 1, that God was at work. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and he also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now he says this, Cyrus did this in fulfillment of what God had said by the mouth of Jeremiah. We read one of those in Jeremiah 25, 12. Another one of those that he fulfills was in Jeremiah 29, one of your favorite verses probably to quote, that you know the plans of God, right? Here's Jeremiah 29. This was a promise to the people of God. He says, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And these were the words given to Jeremiah to encourage the people of God that they are going to face exile and the discipline from the Lord that they deserve for their sins, but the Lord is gracious and merciful that he still plans for them a future and a hope that he's still faithful to the covenant that he has made with them, even though they have been faithless. And there was a prophet 
named Daniel who read the words of Jeremiah while he's in exile, and he thinks to himself, wait a minute, we're getting close to that time that God said he would let us go back. So what does he do? If you look in Daniel chapter 9, he prays. First year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God. Daniel understands the prophet's Jeremiah has spoken that there's going to be 70 years that we deserve to be in exile, but that 70 years is coming to an end, and so he turns in prayer to his God. And part of the answer to that prayer that Daniel gives to the Lord is found in Cyrus's reign starting in 539 to give this proclamation that the people of God can return back to the promised land. And that's where Ezra picks up in Ezra 1. Now, if you followed the the timeline a little bit and you're doing some math in your head, you think, all right, Jeremiah said 70 years, but they were exiled in 586, and now we're saying when we start Ezra, it's 539, when Cyrus takes over, that's not 70 years, and that's true. There's a few ways of kind of doing the math of 70 years. One is that the first time Nebuchadnezzar shows up, you could start there. He takes some people into exile, so maybe the exile started then. That would have been in 605. And that gets you all the way to 539, 538, to when they return to the land. And you're, you're pretty close to 70 years. Right? You just round up a little bit, right? That's one way of doing it. The other way is to say in that is that just the date of the edict from Cyrus is in 539, 538, somewhere in that range. And so their actual return would have been a little bit later. So we're getting even closer to 70 years. Some just say, yes, that's probably not 70 years, but I think it just shows the character and nature of God that he's gracious, that he doesn't give them the full 70 years that they deserve. Others would say that the 70 years does start in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple and takes them out, and that it doesn't stop counting until the temple is built again, which was 516, giving us 70 years. So you could go either way. They would say, hey, it wasn't just an exile from the land, it was also an exile from their faithfulness to God, and so they were cut off from the temple, and that would be part of their exile. So when it's rebuilt, that's when it ends. Neither of those ways seem problematic to me, both make sense, and I think what both of them do is to say, either way, you're getting pretty close to 70 years. In other words, God is faithful to his word. He has shown his faithfulness, and that he has made it absolutely clear. Ezra and Nehemiah comes in and he points out that when Cyrus issues this decree, that it was the word of the Lord, that it might be fulfilled. In other words, Ezra looks at it, he looks at Jeremiah, he looks at what's happening in the world, he looks at this edict from Cyrus and he says, ah, God is doing that to fulfill his word. He even says that it's God who stirs up Cyrus. In other words, it's God who's working and acting in order to fulfill his promises that he had already given to his people. And so the author points to the words of Jeremiah, but honestly, the author could have pointed to lots of different places. In Isaiah 41, verse 2, there's that same word, stirs. So it could be allusion, as he says, he stirred up Cyrus. He could have been alluding to Isaiah 41, 2, or Isaiah 41, 25. Or if you look in Ezra, verse 2, 1, 2, he says, thus says, Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Well, he could be referencing another prophecy from Isaiah. If you look in Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 28, says something similar. 
says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him like Babylon and to loose the belts of kings to open doors before him that gates may not be closed so that they could go back into the promised land. Ezra chapter 1 verse 3 says, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is God who is in Jerusalem. This could be referring to Jeremiah chapter 16. So we look to Jeremiah chapter 16, very similar words there. 16 verse 15 says, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. Ezra 1.4 says that let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts beside freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. He could be referencing again Isaiah 45. Let's look back at Isaiah 45 verse 13. We read that I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for a price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. We could go to chapter 48, verse 20 of Isaiah. It says, go out from Babylon, free from Cal- flee from Chaldea, declare this with a mouth, with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed his servant Israel. And honestly, we could keep going. We could reference others, Jeremiah 24, Jeremiah 30, Jeremiah 51. I mean, the author could have like looked at lots of different prophets, look at lots of what they said, and he could have pointed to many places and said, this is in order to fulfill what the word of the Lord said here. But he has a point to it. In telling of the fulfillment of God's word through the prophet Jeremiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, is giving readers a view that needs to be factored in when you look at all the events in the world that's going on around you. That what needs to be factored in is the Lord and his faithfulness to his word. We could tell the story of, of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar raising to great power, and then Cyrus comes along, and there's this kind of sneaky ploy, and they take over, and now Cyrus and the Persians are kings, and it's because of their strategy and their military might. We could say all that, but it wasn't just pattern the powers battling it out. It wasn't just strategy and successes on the battlefield. It's the Lord acting for his name, for his people, for his promises. That's what Ezra is telling us. That's the perspective it's given. In other words, he's, he's telling us this for an exhortation to the people of God to know that the Lord that they serve is a God who always keeps his words. You can rely upon his promises. He's trustworthy because he is a faithful God. He never breaks a promise. He always keeps his word. His faithfulness, in other words, stretches to the skies, all the way up into the clouds. Yeah, exile would have been really, really difficult. Going back into the promised land, rebuilding, that would have been tough, full of pitfalls, as we'll see as we go through in Ezra and Nehemiah. What they're going to need in the middle of that is a faithful God. And if they're to trust in the Lord in the midst of all their difficult experiences and their tough circumstances, they're going to need a faithful God. They're going to need God's promises. And we will too. We're going to need to know that the Lord our God is faithful God and he will keep all of his promises. I heard this beautifully applied one time when I was listening to a podcast by Johnny Erickson Tata, and she said this, 
One morning when Ken, that's her husband, was driving me to work, I was in such distress because of my chronic pain. More than 50 years in a wheelchair can cause severe scoliosis and nerve pain. And I was ready to ask Ken to turn around on the freeway, take me back home. But Psalm 119 came to mind. It says, my comfort in suffering is this, your promises renew my life. And so, there in the van, I began reciting out loud as many Bible promises as I could remember, including promises that God will never leave me, that his grace is sufficient, that he is my ever-present help in trouble, and that he bears my burdens, and so many more. And by the time I arrived at Johnny and Friends, it's where she works, or ministry, I was still in pain, but I had courage. God gave me perseverance to face the day. Friend, this is how you can prepare yourself to face times of affliction. Get to know the promises of God. And I thought, how encouraging it is to think that we can have these promises that we can rely on and depend upon in the midst of all the turmoil and to help us persevere and have strength and courage to face what God has put in front of us and what the world is surrounding us with. But then conviction hit. And I thought, "That's, that's a great idea to just sit and recite the promises of God. But how many promises of God could I recite? And she's just able to rattle them off of her head. And I thought, how many could I even practically recite? If I were just to recite the promises of God, how many could I come up with? Now, I could recite my circumstances, my, my experiences. I could tell everybody in great detail how hard they've been for me. I, I could give you all my emotions and feelings and when I was doing what. I could give you all of that, but the promises of God would be harder to come by. In other words... My experiences, my circumstances often carry more weight than the promises of God in my life. And things that don't give life, like our circumstances and our experiences and our struggles and our sufferings, shouldn't carry more weight than things that give life. God's promises are meant to renew life because God is a faithful God and all of his promises will come to pass. If he is not faithful to his promises, then, then there is no renewal of life upon reading them, thinking about them, meditating on them. But there's also no renewal if those promises are not known or where they are neglected. We must get to know God's promises, promises that we see all through the scripture like Romans eight twenty eight. That God is working all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Or perhaps like John 15, 5, that if you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things, nothing. Or Philippians 1, 6, that he who began a work in you is going to be faithful to carry it to completion. Or Matthew 28, 20, that go and make disciples of all the nations because I'm with you always to the end of the age, perhaps we see the faithfulness of God at its climax in the person of Jesus. Now, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ as he carries all things to fulfillment in himself. We see that in Christ, he is the one who was sent into the world, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life, or that those who believe in him, though they die, they will live. God is faithful to every single one of those promises. Do you want your life renewed? You need to get to know the promises of God. Get to know the, the faithfulness of this God. 
who will always keep his promises, who always keeps his word. Start thinking on God's promises and look to past promises that he has already fulfilled. The scripture is full of them. Ezra Nehemiah is going to point us to them. That's what he does. He, he looks back and says, see Cyrus? Oh yeah, that was fulfillment of what God had said. There's going to be times when it doesn't seem like God's promises are going to be fulfilled. Like if you're in Babylon in exile and Nebuchadnezzar's your king and he has destroyed your city, it might seem like God's promises are far off, like they won't be realized. There might be difficult circumstances and suffering in our lives where it seems like the promises of God are distant, but we need to remember the character of our God. God is faithful. And because this is true, we can continue to trust in God and live by faith no matter what things look like around us. And Ezra Nehemiah, it doesn't just exhort God's people to trust the Lord because he's faithful. It does do that. But he's doing something different even as he introduces this. He encourages us, exhorts us to trust in the Lord because he is sovereign. Now Cyrus he might sound like, as you read through this, like, man, maybe he's a believer. Maybe he trusts in the Lord. Maybe he's for God's people. He says that this is the Lord, the God of heaven. And so maybe with this edict, we think Cyrus is in line with the people of God. He says, verse 2 again, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. So is he listening to God? Is he obeying him? Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. He is God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor go, and he even blesses their going, that they might make offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, you're thinking maybe Cyrus is on board with them, but we should be a little bit more hesitant to say so. There's this uh, cylinder found. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. There's a picture of it up here. It's actually, I think it's in a museum in, in England somewhere right now, and the, what looks like scratchings on that is actually writing from Cyrus from someone who was writing it down for him. And it says this, I return to these sacred cities, the sanctuaries of which have been in ruins for a long time, the images which used to live therein and establish for them permanent sanctuaries. I also gathered all their former inhabitants and returned to them their habitations. May all the gods whom I have resettled in their sacred cities ask daily Bel and Nebo for a long life for me. <laughs> All right, those would have been the chief gods of the Babylonians, Baal and Nebo. And he goes on in this later to give all of his loyalty and say he is, his lord is, is Marduk. I think that's how you say it. So in other words, Cyrus is not submitting to the one true living God. He submits to these other gods. That's where his ultimate loyalty lands. And what he wants to do for all the people, it's a different policy than the Babylonians. They came in and just destroyed and took you into exile. He's saying, actually, we can go back. But make sure you, you give me some credit for this, right? And make sure that you make, tell my God, pass it up the chain of command so that I could kind of get credit for this. He wants long life for himself. And so his allegiance wasn't to the one true living God. He wasn't trying to send them back to the promised land that they might rebuild the temple and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. He was trying to gain favor with his God. He was trying to get merit before him and actually try to gain favor with his people. And maybe they'd think he's a good guy and be loyal to him. He was making a political move. In his mind, he is working out the best political policy for the sake of his kingship and his kingdom. Other nations other than Israel got the same kind of treatment. So this isn't him being faithful to God. This is him trying to look out for good old number one. But again, Ezra says in verse one, that there's more going on here than Cyrus just plotting for his own sake. That it was the Lord who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus so that he made a proclamation 
the Lord is doing something. They're stirred. That very word speaks of God's sovereignty in rousing something to action. We see it in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, where God stirs Pul, another king. Or in Jeremiah 51, 11, where God stirs the kings of the Medes. He does it with nations. In 2 Chronicles 21, he stirs the Philistines and the Arabians. In Isaiah 13, verse 17, he stirs the Medes. In other words, what we're seeing is a God sovereignly acting in his world. One commentator says this, the initiative of men and the sovereignty of God are concurrent or confluent events. Without violating the way things happen, the meaningfulness of cause and effect, or the freely given agency of individuals, God ensures that his will, his sovereign decree, occurs. How he does this is a mystery to us, but it is the consistent teaching of the Scripture. You might have heard the the popular short phrase that man proposes and God disposes. And that's what's happening. Cyrus, he issues a proclamation. He thinks it's a proclamation that's good for him, that's strategic for his kingdom and for his kingship. But God didn't abandon his control over all things. He stirred up Cyrus so that he might issue this decree. In other words, we could say it as the Proverbs do in 21.1, that the king's heart are a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns them or stirs them wherever he wills. Man proposes and God disposes. We could say it another way. In Proverbs, again, Proverbs chapter 16 says it this way, verse 9, that the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or in chapter 19, verse 21, that many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Cyrus planned, but it was the purpose of the Lord that stood. At a time for the Israelites when it seemed like Israel was beyond God's reach, Nebuchadnezzar owns us. Now Cyrus owns us. I don't know how we're going to get out of here. When they're beyond God's reach, when they're in the middle of darkness and experiencing exile, God was still sovereignly in control. When Joseph was thrown into a pit, when he was sold and then imprisoned, he probably thought God's purposes, that he showed me in a dream, that my brothers are going to bow down to me and we're going to have this great time together, he probably thought those promises are far off or maybe had failed. But at the end of Genesis, he says, Genesis 50, 20, What you guys meant as evil against me, God meant for good. When Jesus was delivered up by Judas for money, by the Jews for envy, by Pilate for fear and crucified, it likely looked hopeless for his followers. But Peter goes on to declare in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Man proposes, God disposes. It is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. And what a blessing it is to know that this God, that the God of the Scripture, that our God is sovereign, that He holds king's hearts in His hand like a stream of water and turns them where He will. And we know that there are less than ideal governments, that there are evil political plots, that there are wicked regimes that enslave and exile people even as we speak. And in the midst of that, the Lord is sovereign in those places, and he has not abandoned or lost his control. God's sovereignty sometimes can't be seen, or it's not easy to see, but Scripture reminds us that it's there. Scripture is needed to remind us that the Lord is sovereign over all. Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus 
were doing what they thought was good for them. They were making strategic moves. And that is one way of saying it. But scripture says it this way, that the Lord was making his purposes stand and was using those men. It's God's purposes that stood. One commentator says that the Bible shows us that God has the ability to move the stream of water, the king's heart, such that life gets worse for God's people. And God has the ability to stir up that stream of water such that God's promises to restore and bless his people begin to be fulfilled. In other words, God will have his way. And there are going to be times just like the Israelites when we're going to feel and it's going to seem like we are beyond God's reach, like we're in too much darkness, too much pain, like we're in exile and there's no way out of it. But the arm of the Lord is not shortened. And he is still in control. He's not abandoned control. There's no place that you can go without the sovereign hand of the Lord. If you go to the heights, he's there. If you go to the depths, he's there. And he's sovereign in every place at all times. This means we do not have to give into despair as we get exiled into Babylon or live as exiles on this earth because we know that God's going to have his way, that his are the purposes that are going to stand in the end. And knowing God's sovereignty empowers us to then do things like the scripture tells us to do, like pray. Paul told them to pray for all those who have authority over you. Why? Because we know that our God is sovereign and that he holds the king's hearts like a stream of water in his hand and he can turn them where he will. And he sometimes uses our prayers to turn those, like Daniel's, where he wants it to go. We can pray as Jesus told us to pray for our persecutors even, knowing that God is working all things even for our good and that he can change even our persecutors for the sake of his name, for our glory, that he can turn their hearts too like a stream of water. Knowing God's sovereignty allows us to truly rest because We can go to sleep knowing that God is awake and that he doesn't need us to keep the universe upheld. He already does that. So we can actually sleep and be unconscious for a third of our life and everything still go as he wants it to go. We can truly rest. We don't have to be constantly at work trying to figure out how we can control more of this world. We can't do it. God's sovereignty gives us confidence to carry out the mission of God because we know that he is with us even to the ends of the earth and that the gates of hell can't prevail against the church. Trusting in God's sovereignty means that we don't have to be in control and that we don't have to grasp for control. Like Because God is great, I don't have to be in control. And that releases us then as his people who trust in his sovereignty to be a blessing and to stop grasping for things that aren't ours. One author says this, that instead of being paralyzed by what you can't control, you are empowered by the knowledge that God is in control. Instead of being tossed by circumstances and reenacting to other people's choices or reacting to other people's choices, you are empowered to act when he calls. God's sovereignty and knowing it and trusting it and living in light of it empowers our activity, our confidence, our hope because we know who God is. Perhaps the place where God's faithfulness and sovereignty meet most prominently is in the person and work of Jesus. Or we see God takes on flesh and he lives a perfect life where he, as God, willingly offers up himself and as God, willingly sacrifices. He is the one who, no one takes his life from him. He lays it down on his own accord and he can take it up again. He sacrifices himself for the sake of sinners, but that's not the end. He shows us his sovereignty and his faithfulness in the resurrection, where he is raised for our justification, where he shows his sovereignty over even death. 
where all of his promises find fulfillment and that Jesus lived, died, and was raised. Now we have all the promises of God find their fulfillment in him. Ephesians 1 kind of sums it up this way, that he raised him from the dead and he seated him at at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has utter sovereignty. He's faithful. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It may be hard sometimes to see that God is faithful and that he is sovereign. But we need to keep looking. Looking to the person of Jesus, looking to the cross where we see the sovereignty of God and the faithfulness of God most prominently displayed. And one way that God has given us to remind us of his sovereignty and his faithfulness is through the Lord's Supper. Where we're reminded of the work of Jesus, that his body was broken so that ours would be made whole forever, that his blood was poured out so that our sins could be covered and forgiven. If you are a believer, be reminded of what Jesus has done on your behalf. Be reminded of the future that he has promised to you in his body and his blood, that he will come again and make it right, fulfill his promises to take you to be with him forever, and take this meal in faith and hope that God is faithful, that he is sovereign, he will bring it to pass. If you are not a believer, We encourage you, instead of standing up and taking this meal, stay seated. Take Christ instead. Believe in him. Repent from your sins and turn to this God who is faithful to everyone who would call upon his name to save them because he is the one who has all power. He can do it. He has the power to save. So let's bow in prayer as we prepare to take this meal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you are sovereign over all things. We're thankful, God, that you keep all of your promises. And Lord, even while we do doubt, we shouldn't. And we don't have to. Because you have proven throughout eternity, God, that you are faithful. And we just pray, God, that as we dive into Ezra and Nehemiah, Lord, as we look at your word and we see a record of your faithfulness once again to your people, for your name's sake, we pray, God, that it would be an encouragement to us, Father, that it would spur us on to love and good works while while we can't relate to the circumstances that we see the Israelites in here, Father, we can relate to the weakness and the sin that we see in them. We can relate to the faithfulness that you show to them. And, and we, can, we can relate to the consequences of obedience and trust. And so, God, we, we want to see it all. And in the end, Lord, we want to recognize that you are sovereign, God, that you will execute your sovereign plan perfectly. That you can even move in the hearts of pagan kings who worship demons. You can even soften these men to your people, and you can guide their hearts however you wish. Lord, what a, what a message to hear now as we in this country are, are struggling politically with leadership and accusations and so much uncertainty, so much division. Lord, it just brings great peace to be reminded that in spite of all this, God, your plan will not be derailed. 
the gospel will go forth. And you are on the throne. Help us just to take great comfort in that, Lord, and, and to just be a light in the midst of so much darkness. Lord, be honored, we pray, by this meal. In Christ's name, amen.